Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. just reached the end of round 21, but it's fair to say finals have already started for about half of the AFL. Welcome to episode 52 of Americans Watching the Footy. Thank you for tuning in once again. I'm Benjamin Castle here with my brother Ethan in South San Francisco, California. And I think this is really a round that you have to look at as a whole because there were only two games that came down to the end or anywhere near it. And only one of those involved teams that are going to make the eight. But the overall results of this round would be massive regardless, and the fact that there's only a fortnight remaining in the season magnifies them even more. Yeah, I would say this round was short on drama, but high on vibes. And you'll see what I mean when we get to our very last game of the round. But big picture, the results that were needed to keep the finals race compelling all happened. So I'm happy for that because I don't want to have like a bunch of lame duck games in round 23 that don't mean anything. I mean, there was one result in particular that did not contribute to that, but you were in favor of it. Yeah, I like being the team that kind of sits there with their position secured, arms folded, leaning back in a chair, just kind of watching all the peasants beneath them fight everything out. Mm, You may have to eat your words about peasants come next month. But before we get into the actual footy this round, just a couple news items we want to get to first. There were reports early in the week about a couple players moving in the offseason. And for once, it's not about Luke Jackson. There were talks about Buddy Franklin. There's questions over whether he's going to be retiring in the first place or whether he would be a Brisbane Lion, of all things. I know he's got family in Queensland, but it seems like there was separation in contract talks and at least a rumor spread by a couple of Queensland outlets was that the Lions were the top bidder for him for next year. Now we've heard that he's holding off on contract talks until after the season, but I take that generally as a sign of departure and he's got more in the tank. So I have no idea where to read this at this point. Sure. If he's a Brisbane Lion, why not? Yeah, there would be, you know, an emphatic, I'm not going anywhere type quote if he was really interested in staying. But I'd be fine with not speculating that until after the season's done, considering he's on a team that's poised to make a very deep finals run. Don't blame him for the way he's gone about it at all. He seems to be handling it properly. When it comes to the Swans fans with whom I've conversed, including Donnie Hess at The Fourth and Long, another good podcast, he seemed more than fine with the thought of Buddy leaving because of what he's given in these nine years at the Swans and also the fact that they have to pay a lot of important young players within the next couple of years. Both McCartans are going to have their deals expire, Chad Warner, number of others. So maybe it's for the best for him to move on and open up cap space for that younger core. Brisbane does seem like a weird spot, though, 
But if Dan McStay leaves as expected, maybe that opens something up for him. At the same time, between Joe Danaher and Eric Hipwood having ventured forward more and more lately, I'm not sure how well he'd fit. It would be a really crowded forward group, and while there's never too much of a good thing, if he's just looking from an individual standpoint at, you know, how can I contribute the most, where can I also be on a legit contender, that's not the first thing that comes to mind for me. What does? Maybe Melbourne, honestly. Maybe you know, Frio if Lob leaves, though I don't think he has much interest in going out west. I think he wants to stay out of an area where he is constantly going to be hounded by the footy media. I think that's one of the things he really likes about New South Wales compared to when he was in Victoria. I'm also going to suggest Richmond because, yes, he would be paired up with Tom Lynch, but still it would be less crowded than the Lions. Uh, I just don't think he'd be wanting to go back to Victoria and who knows what Richmond's situation is going to be. All the speculation around Dusty there. Meanwhile, Isaac Rankin has been offered $5 million across four years by the Crows. I'm not surprised by the fact that he's being offered by his hometown team. The cost seems a little high, but maybe their thought is they want to make him the big marketable player. Would be another addition to a really fun, young forward group, including the likes of Josh Rochelle, Sam Berry when he ventures forward. He's also a hell of a tackler. Riley Philthorpe as a key guy. Honestly, I think the Crows are at a decent point with what they have to offer right now in terms of their list. And they've shown all right for themselves the past couple weeks. We'll get into their game at the very end of the round. But the Carlson win was a very big positive for them. And if they can finish this season strongly, I think it'll quiet some critics of Matthew Mix. And I just think that keeping him around will probably do them some good as well, just in terms of seeing what they can build. Because there is culture that goes with coaching stability. And... Crows are in desperate need of some stability on that front when revelations from more than four years ago with the collective mind camp continue to pour in. Josh Jenkins, the most recent player to drop his side of things, put out a big piece on the SEN website. You can hear him say it on there as well. Things continue to look ugly for the club. Clearly, promises were broken by them and or likely and those working at collective mind in terms of what personal things were shared. Nothing about this is going to end well, but my big question is what is left in terms of what the club can do to mediate things now? I mean, Mark Ricciuto has not handled things well at all on his end. I think he should honestly be out the door. But other than that, I don't really know how much the club can do to rectify things other than giving apologies because most of the pieces that were there then are gone in terms of executives in terms of management. And you said Ricciuto's never really made any statement on it? He's been one of the leaders of the just move on thing. He has yet to really make an apology for it. Don Pike, who was the head coach then, now an assistant at the Sydney Swans, someone who's come under even more scrutiny now than he had before, and rightfully so, I say, has offered another apology, but Ricciuto has stayed mum. One last piece of news before we get into our nine-game recaps, and I'd say this is probably the best news of the week. We met one of our followers, Rudy Ebsall, noted Cats fan. He was in town for a day before flying on to Portland. Portland, Oregon, that is. It was fun to grab dinner and drinks with him and just talk about footy and all sorts of other sports stuff. Rudy works for Triple M Melbourne on some of the graphic design side and some of the directing of broadcasts. So it was cool hearing the stories he had about that job about what it was like to actually be in stadiums when everything was closed off 
and just what it's like to be on the inside. The takeaway that I got from our discussions, similar to what I've already known, is that you know the footy world is a lot smaller than the world for a lot of American sports. I mean, such as you see Mark Ricciuto, a club chairman, doubling as a sideline reporter. And just people wear a lot of different hats. And my other big takeaway was, damn, we need to get to Australia soon. When we both have more stability in terms of where we're working, living longer term, it's definitely one of the biggest things on our to-do list. Hopefully within the next three years, we'll be able to make our first trip. And I think the way we'd have to do it would probably be maybe a week and a half getting in in time for, you know, the first round of games on the trip and then get in a second at the end and then just explore some of Australia in between. Yeah, definitely. I've thought about it to some extent, but I'm not sure about full details, but definitely fly in, see around, then do some just exploring and tourism stuff and then see another round. It's just a matter of kind of optimizing things, you know, with wanting to go to, say, the Gabba, the Adelaide Oval, Optus Stadium, and to fit all of those in. I feel like we'd have to do it over a couple trips to be able to get everything in. Oh, for sure. But I don't think this is going to be a one-off thing. I think we'll be making multiple trips there for sure. So whenever that day comes, we'll make sure to publicize things very well and hopefully meet up with as many people as possible and have a lot of drinks. Coffee. Time to get into the footy. And um, you know what? Aaron Paul probably said it best. You can't keep getting away with it. By he, I mean they. And by they, I mean the Collingwood Football Club because the Pies have fucking done it again. Winners by seven points against Melbourne. Melbourne 13-11-89, defeated by Collingwood 15-6-96 on Friday night footy. They are now in second on the ladder. They have now extended their VFL-AFL record by winning 10 games by two goals or fewer this season. Kind of at a loss for words at this point, but this is a podcast, so I guess we have to have words. Ethan? You know, in some of their wins this year, Collingwood's done a lot of taking advantage of opponents' mistakes. I think they did less of that this round and just played a really good game. Having said that, Melbourne were extremely inaccurate. Specifically one, Max Gunn, who did everything else incredibly well, but kicked a couple of behinds. I think he had one or two shots that just missed everything. And I think Collingwood's game plan was awesome. They made sure that Jake Weaver and Stephen May didn't take over. Zero intercept marks in the defensive 50 for those two combined. They kept things on the ground. They took advantage of turnovers all over the oval. And that's how they were able to make do when the team stats went so against them. They were minus 24 in inside 50, 65 to 41, minus 20 in clearances, 52 to 32. But also when Collingwood got those possessions, they made them matter. 56.1% disposal efficiency inside 50 is remarkable. They did not allow a point in the final 8 minutes and 27 seconds. They scored the final goal after a marginal push in the back call that gave Ash Johnson a free kick. That came with 6.54 left, and after that, they just kicked a couple more behinds, but managed to hold on, and the Ds never really had any super great chance after that. And a lot of that was because Collingwood put on really good forward pressure. And I think this was my favorite thing about their game. They weren't playing not to lose. We've seen a lot of teams play not to lose in a variety of sports. As San Jose Sharks fans, when it comes to ice hockey, we have seen it far too much over the last 
three coaching administrations now. You see it in NFL and college football games all the time, and it doesn't work. When you have a chance to seize it, you go for it. Especially in a sport like Australian rules football, where you can score so quickly and where percentage matters, I don't get the idea of playing just to hold things down and secure the win. And look, you know, Collingwood's percentage isn't great. And of course, Melbourne were fighting for everything because there's a log jam there at 345 that they're part of now. This round didn't really have the multitude of big comebacks that we've seen recently, though this would constitute one of the largest, if not the largest, of the entire round. Melbourne led by 23 at one point in the second quarter. I believe that was 53 to 30. They also led 65 to 44 shortly before halftime, but Ash Johnson got a big goal in the final minute of the first half. The Pies trailed by 17 with 6.22 left in the third, but managed to get a big Brody Majacek goal off of Jordan Degoe set up, and then Patrick Lipinski with a nice shot that curved back. That was off a really nice assist by Jack Ginvin, who was getting tackled by Clayton Oliver, managed to keep the play alive and get the ball free. And that sent Collingwood into the fourth within striking distance. They trailed by just seven after three quarters and ended up taking the lead with 12.24 left on an Ash Johnson goal. Lead changed hands a couple of times with goals by Ben Brown, then Josh Dacos off a Josh Carmichael handball. Alex Neal Bolin had a goal on the run after Christian Petraka started a really nice chain of handballs, but Johnson got the goal off of that iffy push in the back call. And then from there, the Pies really just didn't let up with the pressure. Jack Crisp nearly put it away with 2.12 left, but his kick hit the post. Collingwood was able to get a ton of stoppages in the forward 50 in the final minute. They really kept up the pressure. And then Jack Crisp's interception with 17 seconds left sealed it. He had a kick after the siren that went for a behind, meaning it's yet another seven-point win for the Pies, who indeed got away with it. The midfielders for both teams had a lot of room to run for a lot of the game, but still I thought Melbourne were keeping some of their defenders too far toward the forward half at times because it meant that once Collingwood were able to get over the back, the numbers were already thin back there, and it made their job a lot easier. Makes sense as to why they were able to get so many good shots and have good efficiency when they got inside 50. Meanwhile, there were multiple spots in the second half, particularly there was a big portion in the fourth quarter where Melbourne only got two goals from really about 10 minutes of forward time. And as if I already thought Collingwood were going to get away with it, the fact that they didn't yield then pretty much confirmed it for me. And from that point, it was just, how were they going to do it? You know, I've talked a lot about Michael Hibbard these last couple weeks. I've said he's probably the weakest link in the Demons' defense. He shut me up with his performance against Fremantle. I thought he didn't play a particularly good game this time around. And I think there's a lot of argument to put Jake Bowie back in there. You know, there was a really cool Instagram post from AFL Central that showed the highest rated players for each age 19 through 24 and the fourth highest rated player at age 20. This is with a minimum of 14 games going off of champion data's player ratings is Jake Bowie ahead of Jai Caldwell, right behind Max Holmes. Stats for the victorious Magpies. Nick Dacos, another very active game. Again, at this point, he's honestly my pick for the Norm Smith medal. 31 disposals. 10 intercepts, 464 meters. I believe it was 25 pressure acts leading the way as well. He's a capable mover of the ball and is showcasing his one-on-one defensive skills more and more as well. Jordan Degoe had a goal as part of a 25 disposal day. 
nine clearances and 476 meters gained. I know meters gained can be an iffy stat, but if we talk about it here, it's usually because the ground game really means something. And if not, we'll highlight just how frivolous one player's is. But Aaron Hall was not in this game. Jack Crisp gained 542 meters. That's a functional one. Two behinds, but 24 disposals and eight tackles. Jeremy Howe with nine intercepts. And the big goal scorers for Collingwood, Jamie Elliott and Johnson with four goals and no behinds each, though. Ash Johnson did have one miss where he probably just should have let the ball go for a behind right on the line, but really liking what I've been seeing out of Johnson already. It seems like a real promising, budding key forward, even though he might be a little bit small for that, but you can definitely see where he shares similarities to his half-brother Shane McAdam in his marking ability. Another incredible midseason draft find for them. Collingwood have done that better than any club since its introduction. And one other big team stat for you, Collingwood with 18 tackles inside 50, which is an astounding number and emphasizes just the type of pressure they put on. For the Demons, Clayton Oliver, 42 disposals, 14 clearances, 8 tackles. He was once again everywhere. Christian Petraka, a goal, two behinds, 36 disposals, 10 score involvements, 553 meters gained. Angus Brayshaw, 32 disposals, 6 tackles, 472 meters gained. I liked how he was kept in the middle. Meant that James Harms didn't play, but looked like the right move in pretty much every way with what Brayshaw was able to bring on the ball and bring that intercepting ability forward as well. And also, Ben Brown has continued to grow in some of his abilities on the wing as well. You know, not an absolute star there by any means and will always be overshadowed by Ed Langdon when it comes to wings, but I like the idea of a taller winger if Brown can really grow into that role. Max Gowan, as we mentioned, struggled kicking, left a lot of points out there in a game that the Demons probably should have won. That said, even with those two behinds and kicks out on the full, he did have 31 disposals, 10 clearances, 10 marks, and 490 meters gained. Starting to show some of the form he showed at the end of last season, with the exception of the whole kicking for goal thing. Jack Viney, another big game, a goal, 30 disposals, 6 tackles. Christian Salem, a goal, a behind, 24 disposals and 9 score involvements. Really like how he's played this year. Stephen May has rounded back into form. He finished with 12 intercepts. And Ed Langdon, a goal, 22 disposals, but also one fat egg on his face. It's probably a duck egg. Could be an ostrich egg. Ah, uh, all duck, no dinner. Then it's probably multiple ducks then. I mean, I love the players building up games like this. I'm still not sure if he was all that aware of what he was bringing to the table for this game, but he was the focus right away. A big tackle put on him right away by Braden Maynard. Things got physical there. Collingwood clearly kept that in their mind, and uh, I mean, it's not like they needed any more motivation, but it clearly served as some. And another reason why I'm convinced that Collingwood are going to manage this, get all the way to the flag, is because, yes, they have the lowest percentage to sit in the top two after 20 games played, by far, by well over 5.5%, but the two next lowest teams, Carlton in 1970 and North in 1999, they also won the flag. That stat, of course, coming from Swamp once again, at Sir Swamp thing on Twitter. He is just so incredibly useful in terms of weird stats, fan requests for things, an absolute must-follow for AFL fans. The early Saturday slate, a couple of games that have no relevance to the finals discussion, but a compelling game nonetheless. This was one that I was really hoping would be good after the first meeting sucked, and it delivered with Hawthorne pulling out a seven-point win over Gold Coast, 10-10-70 to 8-15-63. Hawks got out to a 27-point lead midway through the second quarter. 
led by 21 at halftime, 17 after 3, but the Suns made a pretty legit comeback push in the fourth, cutting the lead down to 10, but then Mabi Orchol, who had yet to kick a goal in this game, had a shot from inside 19 meters, chance to bring it to a four-point deficit, and he hit the post. This game was the end of his goal streak. He had kicked a goal every game this year. He was one of the two last players remaining going like that. So congratulations to our sole survivor, Bailey Fritch. Suns had a couple more chances. It was a good game for Mac Andrew in his second career appearance, but he did have a chance to score and went out on the full. The breeze in Tasmania didn't help, but the Suns did kick 815. Luke Bruce kicked an important behind with 247 left to stretch a lead back to seven. And then a Ben McAvoy intercept with 117 left and a Connor Nash tackle on Nick Holman put the game out of reach, cemented the win for the Hawks, who have now won four of their last five. They've taken advantage of this easier part of the schedule and just continued to show good signs of development. We talked about this with Rudy Etzel about where developing teams are if they're in the right spot and yeah, I'd say Hawthorne are definitely in the right spot. They're winning the games that you expect them to win. Sam Mitchell is showing his coaching smarts already. Their older guard, like Ben McAvoy, playing in his 250th, are showing well, doing a good mentoring job. And I just like the mix that they have all around. I was very impressed with Jai Sarong, brother of Caleb, on debut. Didn't score a goal, but was contributing in a lot of different aspects as a forward, whether it was pressure, goal assists... Just being in the right space, you know, so much of playing the forward position is good spacing and a guy in his first game getting into that fold, that can be a challenge. He was always in the right spot, seemed very like ahead of the curve with where he should be mentally at this point. So I was pretty impressed by that. Even if he only finished with nine touches for the game, I liked his performance. Josh Ward is having a really good second half of the season. God, Ben McAvoy is tough. He was bleeding from near his ear and got back in there very quickly, made a couple of key plays. And perhaps the biggest takeaway for Hawthorne is they didn't completely run out of steam at the end. Yes, they slowed up offensively pretty significantly. They scored a single point in the fourth quarter and just 14 in all in the second half. But they're learning how to pace themselves better so that they at least have some energy left to defend and hold on to this lead. So that's the sort of growth and evolution that I was hoping to see out of them. And they've checked off pretty much every benchmark over the last few weeks. Heck, they could go out there and just completely lay an egg in their final two games. And I'd still say this is a very successful year for them. I hope they don't. I hope their last couple games end up being compelling because this has been an interesting team to watch. They finished with Richmond and the Bulldogs. So certainly some chances to play spoiler there. Anyway, just good job, Hawthorne. From the Suns standpoint, they played a good second half, but... Hard to come back in significant wind. And I really liked how Jared Witts played. He's not just generating hitouts. He's starting to get himself involved more around the ground. But overall, Suns obviously disappointed with their situation. I was a little surprised they didn't stay out there to salute McAvoy after his 250th game. Meanwhile, a lot of fans criticized their team staying out for things like that. So which way's right? I'd say stay on. I think the Suns can definitely say a lot of their struggles towards the end of the season have been caused by the massive barrage of injuries to their defense. Ultimately, they don't have the depth to withstand that yet, and that needs to be the next step for them. But I would still largely consider this a good season for them. Next year's going to be make or break, though, and I'd like to see them finish the year strong. Hopefully, they don't play well against Geelong, but I do see that as a trap game, so I'll get into a bit later and more in the Round 22 preview. And then they finish with North, so 
chances there to pick up at least one more win and continue to build for the future. Relevant stats for Hawthorne, Jai Newcomb, we said a lot about him, pretty much entirely positive and another very active day for him with 27 disposals and seven marks. Dylan Moore didn't score a goal, stayed involved. Uh, behind, 26 disposals, eight clearances and six tackles. James Sicily with 26 disposals, eight marks, he gained 587 meters. Jagero Mira and Josh Ward both scoring 1-1 and getting 20 disposals. O'Meara also with eight clearances and eight tackles. Connor Nash, another active game for him. 19 touches, six tackles. Big interceptors in the back for Hawthorne were Will Day with 12 and Jack Scrimshaw with 11. And leading the way in terms of scoring for Hawthorne, Jack Gunston, 5-1, 14 disposals at eight marks. He scored five goals in two of three games since coming back from his bereavement period. On the Sun side, David Swallow, a behind, 33 disposals, 7 tackles, 6 clearances, 6 marks, 494 meters gained, 30 disposals for Brandon Ellis. Really nice game for Elijah Hollins, who looks like he's going to be part of this young core for a long time to come. A pair of goals on 23 disposals. He also had 9 marks and gained 521 meters. Tuke Miller had 21 disposals and an octopus, but was limited to just 82 meters by the tagging expertise of one Finn McGinnis. That's been another of the more underrated aspects of this Hawthorne team. And Darcy McPherson finished with 11 intercepts. Hawks were also the more efficient team inside 50, in addition to being the more accurate kicking team. Hawthorne 50% efficiency and Gold Coast just 41.5%. The biggest bellwether for the Gold Coast Suns' success is what Tuke Miller can do in terms of ground gained. If he's limited to 100 meters or anything around it, good luck. I believe they're just 2-12 and 12 when Miller is kept when Miller is kept below triple digits and ground gained. You know, while I was watching that Hawks-Suns game, I thought at one point the game you were watching was the better of the two, and it sure looked that way at halftime. It did not finish that way, as you get to be the one to tell us all about the Giants and the Bombers. Yeah, a revenge game for a good portion of the caretaker coaching staff for Greater Western Sydney. Mark McVeigh, Dean Solomon, James Hurd. And there was a lot going on in this game from the very beginning. There was a pre-bounce scrap centered around Jake Stringer and Stephen Canelio. Harry Himmelberg got involved as well. Stringer's jumper was ripped after another scuffle after the Giants' opening goal. I think we were just both amazed by the fact that this didn't involve Toby Green at all. This game was just a weird watch because for a lot of the game, especially almost all of the first half, the forward time switched for stretches of between five and ten minutes of real time each way. Just multiple runs of goals didn't help the Bombers case at all that in that scrap after the first goal, Harry Himmelberg was awarded a free kick and he made that count, kicking from 56. He's an incredibly versatile player. Though, I think keeping him in the back is going to be what's best for the Giants, considering where they have their depth. The Giants clearly came in motivated. They got fast runs and movement as they did in McVay's first few games in June. I don't know why they couldn't manage this in July. But Essendon then came on strongly. Sam Draper and Peter Wright showing well. Peter Wright will close in on his first 50-goal season. I imagine he'll end up getting that next round. Other impactful players for Essendon, obviously Kyle Langford and Brandon Zirk Thatcher, who, again, we thought about him in the first half of the season because he got his pants pulled down one time. This past month and a half, he's really solidified himself 
as a solid intercept mark. Jake Stringer definitely left a lot of points on the board this one. He had three scoring shots all by the middle of the second quarter, and they were all behinds. He missed left, he missed right, and he is just such a visible player and such an impactful player when he can get goals. I said, I think just this past round, when he is on, there are a few players who are better in that moment, but when he's off, you can just tell. There was one notable play and one where people questioned the umpiring when James Stewart intercepted Lockie Whitfield in the goal square, but Toby Green affected the handball, got a finger or two on Stewart's arm. Green picked it up and scored. That gave the Giants a six-point lead late in the third quarter. The Giants were able to grow out the lead to 13 before three-quarter time and were able to lock things down in terms of just overall possession. Did patch up some things in defense in the fourth quarter. They ended up winning by 27, 14, 12, 96 to 10, 9, 69 for Essendon. Nice. The question that people had from that play by Toby Green was, did he encroach too much? Did he run over the mark? Should it have been a 50-meter penalty because he needed to get out of the goal square? Bottom line, though, was James Stewart didn't take the time for Stan to be called. And if you don't do that, you're not doing yourself any favors. The Giants were able to generate a lot more scores from their inside 50 entries than Essendon did. Despite what Matt Welfie was able to do, kicking a career-high four goals, he had some late missed opportunities, as did Harry Jones. That could have really helped Essendon get back into this game. I didn't think they'd be able to claw their way back enough to end up winning it, but it would end up looking more respectable. My biggest question exiting this game is just, where was this for GWS all of July? And what did Mark McVeigh do to change things up? He clearly lit a fire under them in some way because despite only making three changes when he said only eight players actually went the full way last round, they picked themselves up, dusted themselves off, and looked the best they did since a number of weeks ago. And everything that GWS did between ground ball gets and clearances on the offensive end, pressuring defensively, magnified the fact that Essendon's ball movement was as dry as it was a couple months ago in the second half. Nice to have a bunch of players with big stat lines for GWS. We haven't been able to say that in a while. Lockie Whitfield, a goal of behind, 29 disposals, 8 marks, 544 meters gained. Callan Ward, a goal, 25 disposals, 10 marks. Harry Himmelberg, a goal, 23 disposals, 11 marks. Isaac Cumming, 29 disposals, 10 marks, 458 meters gained. Stephen Canelio, a goal, 20 disposals, 7 tackles. First time in a while, we've talked a lot about Tom Green, 20 disposals, 6 tackles. Sam Taylor, 9 intercepts and 8 marks. And Jesse Hogan, 4 goals, 2 behind, 17 disposals and 12 marks. Jesse Hogan is as strong a contested mark as any one of the AFL, and I definitely don't think he's gotten his due just because as prominent as the Giants were a couple times in the 2010s, he tends to be overshadowed even at that club. And when GWS aren't in the spotlight, it's not like he's going to get much focus anyhow. So glad he had the impact he did in this one so we could talk about it a bit more. He outdid Brandon Zerk Thatcher multiple times, and not many players are capable of saying that in recent weeks. As nice as it was for the Giants to play better, I still think they've had the most bland and least entertaining season any team's had in a while. As of now, they're the only team that hasn't beaten a team that's going to be playing finals. Now, if Richmond fall out, that would take away North's win over a finals team, but they've played very few games and have come down the wire. They haven't beaten a lot of particularly good teams. 
Yes, hasn't then have been playing better until the last couple of weeks, but unless they unless they ruin the Bulldogs season or upset Fremantle, they're not going to have a win over a finals team. And while this was a nice win, it's still just been kind of forgettable. Not many players to highlight statistically for Essendon. I already mentioned Jake Stringer going 0-3. Darcy Parrish behind, 28 disposals, 8 score involvement, 7 clearances, and 6 tackles. I'm still mixed on his impact. I think I rate him a lot lower than a lot of people do. Maybe it's just because Essendon were going so poorly for the first part of the season when he was in, and then they rounded to form when he came back. I'm going to definitely focus on him come 2023. Kyle Langford, a goal, 18 disposals, and seven tackles. Brandon Zirk Thatcher with 10 intercepts, five of which were by Mark. This game was televised on Fox Sports 2. It cut away from coverage before we could see the Giants sing a song in the team room, but we were gifted the montage. I don't think we've talked about the montage before. I'm pretty certain we haven't. I just refer to it as the montage. So if any of you have ever watched a footy game on one of the Fox Sports channels in the U.S., you may notice when there's like five to ten minutes to fill at the end of their coverage, they usually cut away from whatever post-game stuff, and they don't just fill the time with commercials. They'll show some commercials, but at one point they insert this rugby montage that we found is of the 2013 Sydney Roosters, and it's got like this EDM track playing, and I've seen it so many times, and... I still don't know why it's a thing. It's been a thing for at least three years. And I just think it's really funny. It irritates me more than anything at this point because there are good things that the immediate post-game coverage offers in terms of interviews and the fact that they show the song. There are only a couple times this season where the game actually finished in the proper window for the song to actually even be shown. And I don't know. Is it funny? I mean, it was funny the first few times, and we just, like, text each other in all caps, MONTAGE, when it comes on, because it's become a running joke between not just the two of us, but our father as well. I'm just fed up with it. I think it gets funnier every time. I think it was after the first couple times that we started to notice that it was a thing, and I think with every progressive showing of it, it gets funnier. Wait till they cut away from the grand final trophy presentation and all that to show the montage. I remember in 2020, they showed most of the post-grand final coverage. I forget last year if they did. I wouldn't know. I wasn't at home for it. I was in Berkeley by then. But yes, long live the montage. The middle game on Saturday was a correctly assigned game to the time slot. It was actually a significant game. It was the Bulldogs hosting Fremantle at Marvel Stadium. And after this one, I think it's time to ask two questions. One of which I know the answer to. The first question, was this game important to the Bulldogs? My answer is no. no. Clearly their backs were not against the wall because they knew that they only need to win two of their last three, assuming the Blues lose out. Now, what happens if they lose one of those two and miss out? Well, then we'll know that making the finals wasn't a big deal to them and they didn't feel like their backs were up against the wall. You are really going to take this all the way. Oh, yeah. The other question is... If they have a home final, should Fremantle ask to play it at Marvel Stadium? Fremantle are 3-1-1 at Marvel Stadium and 5-1-1 as a whole in Victoria with a win each at Cardinia Park and the G. So they picked up 22 points in Victoria when no other out-of-state team has earned more than four. Meanwhile, they're 7-4 at Optus Stadium, 6-4 in home games, so to speak. 
So I think there's a real argument for the Dockers belonging in Victoria. You know, maybe someone affiliated with the club that has Fremantle's best interest in mind slips Mark McGowan a little note telling him to close the border when the Dockers are out of state, make sure that they have to stay in Victoria, because that's how those Flagmantle 22 predictions are going to become a reality. So maybe that Giants banner was right, but not for the reason they expected. That was undoubtedly the best banner of the season. There have been some good ones. That was the best. For those of you that don't remember, it read, Giants are in town, tough and hard-nosed. Frio will be wishing the border stayed closed. The Dockers did win that game, but the banner was great. As for this one, they also won this game. Bulldogs 11-12-78, defeated by Fremantle 14-11-95. Benjamin, take it away. Well, I had a negative about Fremantle before this game even began. Bailey Banfield was not selected at all. I just didn't understand it with what he's able to bring to the table. He's been an unused sub multiple times, now being straight up omitted in favor of Liam Henry, of all people. Just didn't see right. I mean, don't get me wrong. Liam Henry has had his exciting moments, but Banfield is the better player, and he's not the person to alienate when there's potential for a trade, although that would require him going away from home unless he wants to go to the Eagles. And if so, please, by all means... However, Fremantle did put Nathan O'Driscoll back in, and he had an up-then-down-then-up-again game. Had one error that cost Fremantle a goal, where he should have rushed through from behind, ended up kicking out on the full, but more than made up for it with a highlight goal later. He's got to stay in at this point. It's not rocket science. In terms of team positives for Fremantle, there were a whole lot of them. First and foremost, they created from the defensive half in the first quarter and throughout the game much better than they typically do. The commentators on Fox Footy mentioned at halftime that they averaged 28 points from possessions that start in the defensive half. By halftime, they had already scored 6-3 from that. That's 39. And the way they were able to build things up is that they kind of did what successful opponents the past bit have done to neutralize their kind of full court press. You know, they weren't against a full court press by any means themselves, but they prioritized uncontested marks. They saw the first open open target 15 meters or more away. They gave it to them. They were able to chip their way down the field. It was a, They were able to slowly build half the numbers when it mattered. And when they decided to go, their forward targets did well for themselves. Rory Lobb with a very solid game, scored four goals from his first four kicks, though he did have a couple misses right after that and didn't get another shot, but had more than enough impact off that alone. Matt Tapper with a couple goals as well before he got injured again. I was born with glass bones and paper skin. We saw the makings of what was going to make this game so good for Fremantle in the first quarter when they scored 5-1 to the Bulldogs 3-4. One fewer scoring shot, but making better on it. And then they scored four goals each of the next two quarters. They didn't look back from there. It was clear that the game was theirs from the second quarter onward. And even though there were some highlights for the Bulldogs, Sam Darcy doing well as an intercept marker in his debut, a very good game in the midfield for Josh Dunkley. Fremantle kept things together in the back, even when they were starting to fatigue Jordan Clark with a couple notable plays. In the later part of the third quarter, he went back with the fly of the ball to spoil in a 1v2 against Josh Bruce and Jamar Hagen. A stoppage resulted and the Bulldogs didn't score at all. And then near the end of the game, I really noticed Heath Chapman, as well as Luke Ryan, who was just a lockdown guy in general, and then was extremely efficient when he got the ball in hand as well. And the dogs just couldn't get this game to within three goals until it didn't matter with seconds left. 
You know, one of the things that I've noticed about Fremantle is there are some guys who just really fit their system. I think Alex Pierce is one of those. He's really well ingrained. He's always in sync with everybody. And I don't know if he do so well with other teams, but he knows how to play Fremantle style and he does it really well. That's the sort of guy that they need to keep around as long as possible. Not usually a guy who steals the show, but really holds it down on his end very nicely. And I'm starting to see why Michael Frederick is able to fit Fremantle's system as well. Nathan O'Driscoll being in actually allowed Frederick to get more forward time. And while the reviews I saw of him were actually somewhat mixed, three goals can't be wrong. Fremantle stats, I mentioned Luke Ryan, 32 disposals at 97% efficiency. So basically fucked up once with the ball in hand. 15 marks, 9 score involvements. That's very solid for a defender and gained 573 meters. Jordan Clark with 26 disposals and 10 marks. Heath Chapman, 24 and 11 marks. Alex Pierce also had eight intercepts. Caleb Sarong, one of those do-it-all players in the forward two-thirds, 24 disposals and eight clearances. He's a guy that could definitely get votes out of this game. Andrew Brayshaw actually had a goal. Don't see that much from him. 21 disposals and eight tackles. Darcy Tucker showing why he came back into the side. Didn't score a goal, two behinds but 18 disposals and 10 score involvements, providing very good run through the middle. Michael Frederick with three goals and Rory Lobb with 4-2. I noticed, though, he wasn't used in the ruck at all. Griffin Logue was really the second guy for Fremantle. I wonder if Rory's still got a problem with his shoulder that kept him out of one game. What I realized, though, is with Lobb not doing ruck work and Matt Taverner going down, this seems like a prime opportunity for one Lloyd Meek to make an impact if he's selected for Western Derby 55. I've said a thousand times that he should be in the lineup. Here's your chance to do what's right. Even with that in mind, Frio returned to form for the first time in a while. This was the sort of style we've come to expect out of them. Even in the games like the St. Kilda win, when they had played pretty well, they hadn't necessarily laid to this style. This looked much more like the team we saw early in the season that had people talking about flag mantle. And now with two very winnable games to close out the season, Western Derby 55, their home Western Derby next round, and then Greater Western Sydney in Canberra to close things out. The top four is well within reach. They're on the outside of it. They're sixth at the moment, but it's more than attainable. For the Bulldogs, Josh Dunkley, a goal of a behind, 33 disposals, 10 score involvements. Bailey Smith, a goal, 30 disposals, 491 meters gained. Jack McRae, 29 disposals, 420 meters gained. Tom Libertore, 28 disposals, 9 score involvements, 8 tackles, 7 marks. Ed Richards, 23 disposals and 584 meters gained. You notice all the usual suspects there, but it's been a problem for them frequently this year. Other than, you know, a good game here and there from O'Reilly Garcia, they haven't had enough depth performances. Their best 22 is as good as any. Their top 15 or so guys are excellent, but you need to have you know 25 to 30 guys that can play at a high level, and I don't think they have that. And in order for them to make any sort of real finals run, assuming they get there, which is certainly up in the air, they need to be healthy. One last stat that I think sums up this game as a whole, Fremantle disposal efficiency, 82.7%. Mid to high 70s is good. Getting into the 80s is ridiculous. Because it means that you just thoroughly control the game. You likely have a lot of uncontested possessions. And Fremantle certainly did. 
Fremantle were plus 46 in uncontested possessions, plus 49 uncontested marks. Don't forget. You're here forever? That's not what I was going for, but yes. I was also going to say you can find us on Twitter at AmericansFooty, where we post all of our live reactions, plus occasional memes and stuff. We actually have one in the works right now that we're not going to have done at the moment, just because it takes a little editing. It'll be up well before this episode is finished, though. I'm on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. The better meme content, though, is definitely on Americans Footy. I am on Twitter at Castle Media, and the real star of the show, Grian Harambe, is on Instagram at CatNameGrian. Speaking of Grian, 11 wins in a row for the Cats. And Grian Myers had the most goal assists in the game with three. I had said for a while there was no way they were going 0-2 against the Saints. I was right. There were moments when this game looked a little shaky in the second quarter, but the Cats pretty convincingly outclassed them in most aspects throughout the night, and they did it resting some guys. Remember, this is a team that at this point, their finals hopes are all set. With Collingwood's win over Melbourne, they effectively entered the game with a a game-and-a-half lead over Collingwood, and with the win, got back to two games because absolutely no way can Collingwood catch the Cats in percentage, meaning... With this win, that puts Geelong at 64 points. With Collingwood at 60 and the leading percentage, they really just need either one win in their last two games or one Collingwood loss in their last two games. So with that in mind, Joel Selwood was managed. Cats made a couple of late changes with Mark Blitzovs being managed and then Patrick Dangerfield getting pulled out because of some calf tightness. It works out perfectly. He will now play his 300th game at Cardinia Park in round 23. Assuming he's good to go this week against the Suns, of course. Or his 300th game could be a final. As for this game against the Saints, six-goal first quarter for the Cats. They led 40-18 to after one and could have been up more. Then all of a sudden, St. Kilda started picking up every clearance in the second quarter and getting awarded a bunch of frees, some of which were deserved, many of which were not. They continued their really accurate kick and got the lead all the way down to four with a Dan Butler goal with a minute and a second left in the half. But Brian Myers, who, as we said, played a really good game, had a nice give-and-go with Brendan Parfit, set up Tyson Stengel for a goal to restore a 10-point lead going into halftime, and then the third quarter for the second week in a row, it was all Geelong. Not to the extent of the 50-3 third quarter against the Bulldogs. This time, they once again held the opposition to just three points, but they scored a mere 26, so 76-6 across the last two third quarters. Jack Henry was playing more forward, largely because with Tom Stewart in and with both Jed Buse and Jake Kolajashny playing well, there's a lot of flexibility for that, and it really fueled the offense. The Saints did have a quick shot at goal early in the third after Jeremy Cameron had scored less than two minutes into the period. Ben Long had a chance for a quick answer but missed wide, and then goals by Hawkins, Smith, and Max Holmes from 52. Max Holmes is still a teenager. 19 years old. That brought the lead out to 33. They continued the assault into the fourth, where the Saints finally snapped their drought after almost 31 minutes of clock time on a goal by Jack Higgins. Between those two goals, though, the Cats had put up nine of their own, leading by as much as 58 in the span, and really just pounding the Saints into submission with a really good team effort. Great ball use all around. They played smart. They played together. 
Really, the only guy who didn't seem like he had 360-degree vision all night was Sam Manigola, and that's his first game back after missing a couple weeks. So he gets a pass, and he had a pretty good night stat-wise anyway. A few stars who stood out in this game, obviously Max Holmes, who's been just a monster on the wing, runs really well, and his maturity has been a huge part of his team's success. Zach Guthrie's continued evolution, I've gone out about I've gone on about it a bunch. He looks so much more mature, and they've found a place where he really fits in the lineup, and you see that every week. Isaac Smith, he's usually going to end up with a decent amount of possessions, but I thought he was more in sync and in tune with guys this game than I've ever seen. But this was a game where, said how the Bulldogs, their top guys are legit, but there's a drop-off. The Cats showed there really isn't much of a drop-off because... Again, you look at who they were missing. Dangerfield's been playing his ass off, been the best he's played in three years. Selwood, you know, heart and soul guy, great tackler, big motivator. Blitzov's maybe the most versatile player in the entire competition. And it really didn't hold him back. So without further ado, get into the stats here. Sam Menegola did get tackled a couple times or he had a little bit of a momentary lack of awareness, but still a goal of behind 25 disposals and 10 score involvements. Brendan Parfit, 25 disposals and 10 clearances. Max Holmes, a goal of behind, 24 disposals, 531 meters gained. Mitch Duncan, a goal, 23 disposals and 11 marks. I've commented before how good his instincts are. That continued here. Cam Guthrie, 22 disposals, 7 tackles. Zach Guthrie, a goal, 22 disposals, 8 marks. Isaac Smith, again, one of his most in-tune games where it seems like sometimes he just kind of You know, it's like the shopping cart that has one wheel that doesn't quite behave right. It mostly goes in the right direction, but kind of goes off center every now and then. Well, all four wheels were in position for this game. He finished with three goals, 21 disposals, 11 score involvements, seven marks, 493 meters gained. And a guy who's been a target of a lot of criticism this year for some pretty blatant clangers, Jake Kolejashny, 11 intercepts to lead all players, especially being on a night where the Saints did a good job keeping Tom Stewart away from the action. Sam DeComing didn't have any big possession numbers, but completely shut Max King down. Max King limited to one goal. You know, a couple weeks ago against Charlie Dixon, it was a difficult matchup physically for DeComing. He matches up perfectly with King. But Kolejashny and Buse playing so well, offset a quiet night from Stewart and ensured that Jack Henry was able to roam around so much and show off those offensive abilities again. So... Main takeaway is just this team is more versatile than you think. They're deeper than you think. And the age factor has not been an issue. Saints stats of note, Brad Crouch with 28 disposals and 11 tackles. I didn't watch this game super closely, but he didn't really stand out to me. And I know that he didn't stand out to you much either, Ethan. Yeah, maybe it was just when I was really locked in versus when I wasn't. But I didn't think he was anywhere near as dominant as he was last time. A much better game for Brad Hill, one of the best games he's played in a month plus, I'd say, with 26 disposals and 8 marks. The Saints are at his best when he is at his best. Rowan Marshall, 21 disposals and 7 clearances. He's had to be the Ruckman with Patty Ryder out, but he's still been able to do important things elsewhere. Jack Steele, the captain with a goal, 20 disposals, 7 clearances and 7 tackles. Impactful in one way or another just about every week. And Mason Wood kicked 1-1 with 20 disposals and 10 marks, but the Saints were pitifully inefficient inside 50. 31.1% disposal efficiency there, to Geelong being above 50%. They were at 52. I think a lot of St. Kilda's inefficiency was more a credit to Geelong than it should be a knock on the Saints, because they just got in the way of 
everything. I had the Geelongs and Kilda game on in the background. It was on Fox Sports 2, but from the second quarter on, I knew that we were going to see that giant and the winner is Geelong banner. I didn't see it on camera. I hope it was out there in some capacity. It had to have been. It is the best fan-made banner, though. I do love the one of Tom Libertori as a Simpsons character and the St. Kilda, you bloody beauty, but something stating the obvious like that is fun. My focus was on Port Adelaide and Richmond. You know, this is a game that I had hyped up definitely to myself, just because this matchup really delivered in 2020 and 2021. Richmond's two-goal win on the Thursday night in round 13 was pretty anticlimactic. This one was much more anticlimactic. Port Adelaide, 10-11-71, defeated by Richmond, 16-13-109. I did not see it getting that out of hand. It was a good back and forth in the first half. I was really focusing on Port Adelaide's strategy early. They kept two of their three players capable of taking ruck contests in the forward 50, though Jeremy Finlayson is far from a natural ruckman. It always felt like they were one tall short at times. They needed one more out there to be able to balance things between the rock work and being close to goal. Finlayson and Dixon did get involved offensively, and Dixon had a clear physical mismatch with Noah Balta on him, but Tom Lynch had an even more noticeable one with Trent McKenzie being assigned to him. Lynch only managed one goal out of his first three shots, but you could tell that he was winning those matchups far too easily, and Alir Alir got switched on him. Didn't end up mattering, though. Lynch had his impact nonetheless. Lynch, as well as Shane Bolton, squandered some early chances, but Richmond were doing their thing with just getting lots of four-and-a-half intercepts. They had eight by the time Jack Revolt got one that led to Jack Ross's first goal of the year. That was when there was still 7.38 left in the first quarter. When Shea Bolton marked and then kicked a goal after the quarter-time siren, I really expected Richmond to take over in the second quarter. But Port kicked the first couple goals. They took the lead when Nathan Broad was called for deliberately rushing him behind because he had punched it from outside the goal square. After that, though, you notice that Richmond were being left a whole bunch of space in a range of 40 to 55 meters out from goal, and Port were extremely sloppy in the middle third of the field. Add that with Connor Rosie being on the bench for the latter portion of the second quarter, and you could tell Richmond were starting to take control. They led by nine at halftime. And then they put on a seven-goal third quarter to speed away. 7-4 to 3-2 in that third quarter, with Lynch continuing to be a focus there, as well as both Riolis. Nobody really ran with Daniel for this entire game, and I was wondering when Ken Hingley was going to switch someone proper onto him, and he never did. I was thinking maybe even put Sam Powell Pepper onto him. May not be the most natural matchup, but Powell Pepper can definitely run and he's willing to get physical, and I think Port needed someone to be willing to get physically entangled on some passages with Daniel, maybe bump him a couple times. Just didn't happen. And Daniel's uncle, Morris Jr., yes again, Morris Jr. is Daniel's uncle, with a couple really nice plays, managed to go 1-1 himself. More than made the case for him to stay in the 22, especially with how Damian Hardwick and staff managed things this week, getting Josh Gibkis in there in the back as well by omitting Shane Edwards. Port looked more respectable in portions of the fourth quarter, I'd say, just able to keep things closer than I expected late. But Richmond's dominance was clear throughout the second half, really from a bit before halftime as well. 
Tom Lynch got more accurate. Shea Bolton did as well. Another mixed bag for him. But with how many chances he gets, even just a couple goals do a whole lot. And Dion Prestia continued with very strong play right off of stoppages. This is the year where I've definitely really started to notice it. My eyes were always on Dustin Martin when it came to stoppages and just kind of any time he was in the shot of the camera, just because of how impactful he is in general, especially going forward. But I realized how much I missed out on understanding Dion Prestia's game these past two years. Unfortunately, this game was marred by an injury in the fourth quarter. It looked like Camden McIntosh was trying to make a genuine enough spoil, but he got Darcy Byrne Jones in the head. There was a really audible sound when that contact occurred, and I really hope that wasn't McIntosh's fist colliding with Byrne Jones, because if so, oh my gosh. McIntosh was reported for striking. I think he ought to get off on this one. But having said that, watch him get suspended for a game. I know, Ethan, you're going to have your comments on an MRO incident in a game that you cover a bit from now. Overall, though, this was just a very Richmond win. Contested balls, forward intercepts, when they really opened up the game in the third quarter, pressure and stoppage work created even more of those aforementioned qualities for them, and they were particularly efficient in that quarter as well. Port were more efficient in general from disposals, more uncontested possessions, 74.3% overall efficiency for Port to 653 for Richmond. But Richmond were over 7% more efficient inside 50. 548 to Port, 47.7. That's all right for Port, but anything over 50% is pretty notable. And nearly 55 is excellent. For the Tigers, another great game for Dion Prestia. Even though he didn't score himself, he finished with 32 disposals, 10 clearances, 8 score involvements in 476 meters gained. Trent Cochin, 31 disposals. Toby Nankervis, 29 disposals and 8 clearances. Daniel Rioli, 2 goals, 25 disposals, 8 intercepts, 510 meters gained. Jaden Short, a behind, 23 disposals, 9 score involvements, 539 meters gained. And those were more functional meters gained than a lot of times when he's just bringing it out the back. Cam McIntosh, 22 disposals, 7 marks and 7 tackles. Shea Bolton, 4 goals, 5 behinds. Imagine what he could do if he was kicking straighter. Tom Lynch, 4 goals, 1 behind. Port stats of note. Ali Wines a behind, 32 disposals and 9 intercepts. Zach Butters a goal, 28 disposals and 8 tackles, regarded by a lot of Port fans as their best player for this game, and I'd be inclined to agree. Travis Boak, 27 disposals and 8 clearances. Willem Drew, 25 and 9 tackles. He's definitely shown a lot of facets of his defensive capabilities this year. Dan Houston, 24 and 7 tackles. Brent Tickle with 8 tackles as well. More than just a pure Ruckman. I want to ask, did you think Port Adelaide kind of tuned out as this game went on? I couldn't quite tell. I was thinking throughout that Port were just being outdone, but I can understand why others think that they resigned to their fate. And if that's the case, does not reflect well on Ken Hangley, who we've had a lot of discussions about both on and off air this season. And it seems like David Koch isn't quite committed to him yet for next season either. How funny would it be if it turns out they've wanted Alistair Clarkson this whole time, but they wait to fire Hinkley until it's too late and Clarkson's already at North? It would be pretty damn funny. Oh, fuck. This is my game, too. Yeah, just the way things worked out this week with when our teams were playing, I get to talk about this next game, too. And actually, I have a decent amount of thoughts about 
North and Sydney. Firstly, it was North's 1996 Premiership reunion. They won that centenary grand final against the Sydney Swans. However, John Longmire was injured, did not play in that one. Did get a Premiership medal in his final game in 99. The most interesting thing to come out of the reunion for North is that apparently Wayne Carey and Anthony Stevens came to blows again. Now, of course, Carey's departure from North came about once he got with Anthony Stevens' wife. I just hope there's video of this fight. I just want to know more about who instigated it. Because people are saying that Carrie did, but that just wouldn't make sense. Is he just that stupid? Would he have just, like, gone up to him and said, hey, I fucked your wife? I just love the idea of these two being in a room together. I think this makes for great TV. And again, I just hope there are cameras on it. Okay, then. It would have been a lot more interesting for North had Ben Cunnington played in the AFL game. He looked like he may have been capable of doing it, played pretty well in the reserves game at Arden Street, got the first clearance of that game. Hopefully he'll be back in one of these next couple rounds to give North even more of a lift because they didn't play poorly for themselves in this one, especially considering where they've been for much of the season. You know, they only got two scoring shots in the first quarter to Sydney's nine, but Sydney left North a lot of wiggle room, and Nick Larkey made good on his two shots there. He ended up with seven, and he had a couple different matchups on him. But the bigger focus in terms of back lines was North because Ben McKay was a laid out with a shoulder injury, which, I mean, of course he was. He had to be in Queensland at that time. Yeah, shoulder injury, right. That's what it was. Not that he's actually trying to be two people at the same time. It's like the reverse parent track. Or it's like Roger from American Dad playing, like, every different role at once. All right. That's enough turning around. <sighs> Mackay was replaced by Josh Walker. He had actually played a quarter in that reserves game before getting recalled. Walker was one of the couple players that had some time playing directly against Buddy Franklin as well as Aiden Core. And I can only imagine how much more solid North's back lines could have been with Mackay in there, because it really did feel like they were a man short. Buddy ended up with four, so he's now at 1,040 goals for his career. Sam Reed got a couple goals in quick succession. Isaac Heaney had his impact later on. Chad Warner getting three. I'm giving a whole bunch of Sydney things here, because they did have a couple really big offensive spurts. They had a six-goal third quarter that really put the game out of Absolutely any question. I already could tell that they had already seized the game by then. They had kicked four or five in the first two quarters and were getting many more chances. At the same time, North did all right for themselves, aside from when they were caught flat-footed by the Swans transitioning and when their defensive one-on-ones were so evident. They were up to the task in terms of pressure for much of the game, and that was really noticeable in the first half. And not only did Nick Larkey himself play much better than last week, maybe a lot of it's that his heel has healed up, no pun intended, but the kicks to him were also a lot better as well. North did actually end up winning the fourth quarter, kicking five goals to four there. That actually means third place has to wait for the Sydney Swans, so maybe we will look back on that at the end of the season and say, wow, North really did impact things there in terms of a couple of the final placements. At the end of the day, though, you knew coming in that City were going to do better in this game than they did when these teams played in round four. And I noted the impact of a couple of their younger players in particular. Errol Golden's longer kicking is insane. And Chad Warner can do just about anything in the former two-thirds. Swan stats. Luke Parker, 29 disposals, 9 tackles, 7 clearances. 
Isaac Heaney, two goals behind, 21 disposals, 11 score involvements. Tom Hickey, 20 disposals and 9 clearances. Chad Warner, three goals, two behinds, 20 disposals, 11 score involvement, six clearances, 633 meters gained. Again, he can do absolutely anything in the forward two-thirds. Ollie Florence, 17 disposals and eight intercepts. Will Hayward, a goal, two behind, 16 disposals, seven marks and six tackles. And each of them, Carton Brothers, managed seven intercepts. It's that. Seven intercepts. You got it? No. Instead of seven prostitutes. Huh. A bunch of notable players for North Melbourne. One guy who didn't show up that much on the stat sheet, but who I noticed early on, is Callum Coleman-Jones. He's been taking more and more ruck contests. Really good for his development. Also allowing Todd Goldstein to push forward more. And he was involved in both of North's first quarter goals. And then he got a goal of his own when he took a contested mark over Jake Lloyd. For those of you who may be more fantasy inclined or just interested in stats... Jai Simpkin, a behind, 31 disposals, 6 clearances, 6 tackles, gained 486 meters. Jaden Stevenson had an interesting game, gained 503 meters, 31 disposals at 8 marks, but 2 just completely unaware moments discolored the perspective of pretty much anybody who watched this game. He kind of had one of those controller disconnected moments after a turnover, and that just can't happen. Actually, he had it twice. Maybe that's your controller disconnected moment that you didn't even realize it the second time. Or maybe I was watching the other game or just not paying attention. I mean that too. Just two very, very noticeable moments. And I've been talking earlier to you about how I like his base level instincts, but then those happened. Luke Davies Uniac, a much more positive game. Kicked 1-1, 30 touches, 9 score involvements, 509 meters gained. Such a dynamic player, and I hope his career isn't wasted at Arden Street like I think it'll be. Jed Anderson, 28 disposals, 7 clearances, also took a pretty nice mark. Curtis Taylor, a goal, 23 disposals and 8 marks. Aaron Hall actually had a notable moment when he got a, when he rushed forward and kicked a goal. Had 20 touches, 8 intercepted, 7 marks. And Nick Larkey leading the way with 7 goals straight. Can Nick Larkey ever have a game that's just decent? Either he's invisible or kicks at least 5. I'd love to see him manage some games where he's just... Good. Larky's had two games this year with three or four goals, three two-goal games, a five, a six, and a seven, five one-goal games, and five goalless games. Just give me a couple more three goals. As that game was wrapping up, I got to turn my attention to the Michael Boss Cup. The Mitch Robinson Cup? He did play. He did. He played as the injury sub and did a great job in the role. I think... He really fits that role well as such a high-energy, spark-plug, lightning-rod type guy. But this game ended up really interesting. Didn't look like it at first. The final score was misleading, but significant. The Lions beating the Blues 17-12-114-12-9-81. Brisbane led this game 30-1 after a quarter, but they were kicking very poorly early on. Until a little over five minutes remained in the first quarter, they had started off with a goal and three behinds with shots that they really should have been able to convert. Even when they did convert, it was Jared Berry barely putting one through from close range, but then they got a couple more quickly from Charlie Cameron and Dane Zorko. That turned into a 30-1 lead after a quarter. The Blues did pick it up early in the second, cutting the lead down to 17. Could have been closer than that had Matthew always not missed after he had tackled Big O, Oscar McInerney. Lions went into the half up 35-57-22, really tore it open with a 32-10 third quarter, leading 89-32. to 
And then normally, I wouldn't care about Carlton making a late push, as they did. I never thought they were really in it, even when they got it down to 15 points with 319 to go on a play that could have had a lot of collateral damage for the Lions because Brandon Starcevich collided with Harris Andrews. At least I think it was Andrews, couldn't tell for sure. Jared Berry seemed to be grabbing his knee after a Matthew Owies goal, and it was a 15-point game with 319 left. I still thought there was no way the Blues would be able to win the game, but the percentage matters. And yes, the Lions got a couple last goals to put the game away. They ended up winning 114-81. to Reese Matheson picking up a dropped potential intercept mark and setting up Eric Hipwood for an easy goal. That stretched the lead back to 21, and then... Matheson and McStay each got goals to close the game out. But the fact is, the Blues went from being more than doubled up to not getting completely embarrassed from a percentage standpoint, which is huge because, remember, if they lose out and the Bulldogs win out, that spot comes down to percentage. And at the moment, Carlton do still have the lead there. They're at 109.6, Bulldogs at 107.9. St. Kilda's only hovering at 101.1, and while it's unlikely anyone ends up tied with Richmond, because the Tigers have a tie, if somehow someone does end up even with Richmond on points, the Tigers are in good shape at 115.8. So yeah, those late goals did really matter for Carlton. That said, for the better part of three quarters, they got their asses handed to them. I thought through the first quarter, the Lions were going to regret some of their missed opportunities, and Carlton would make a good push, but... That push was very brief. From what I saw, I expected that Brisbane were going to be able to get things together. And the thing that I expected coming into the game in terms of Carlton's tactics, or maybe lack thereof, yeah, it happened. Carlton just are not a team that tags. And when you're playing against Lockie Neal and Hugh McCluggage, that's a necessity, especially against the former. Neal got the first goal of the game, and even though he didn't find the sticks again, had a very solid impact throughout Also, you remember how much the Lions struggled without Zach Bailey? He didn't play against St. Kilda the first time around, a game where the Lions really got bailed out by injuries piling up for the Saints. He didn't play against Melbourne when the Lions got absolutely smashed. He got subbed out against Richmond and they fell apart and pissed away a big lead. He was excellent. He does so much, both creating opportunities for guys, scoring on his own, He's one of the most well-rounded offensive players in the entire league, and he showed that again here. I thought this was a really strong performance for Jared Berry. I kind of thought of him as a fringe guy for the Lions earlier in the year. He's definitely elevated his game beyond that, and that would be the sort of key that Brisbane are going to need if they're going to avoid being labeled as perennial finals chokers. But yeah, Carlton not tagging. You know, football coaches, especially American football, are a stubborn breed. You see, especially at the high school and college levels, you see it some in the NFL as well. Coaches committed to that same brand of theirs, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, we're always going to pass the ball or we're always going to run the ball, no matter what the situation is. And I guess footy coaches are kind of similar, where Michael Voss's thing is just, we're not going to tag anyone, we're going to play him straight up. And it really hurts when you're facing an opponent like this. And I think you've got to adjust there. You've got to have some sort of a tagger. That said, not a great game for Carlton's defense altogether. Adam Saad did have some big possession numbers, but a couple of bad turnovers. Adam Chera was a bit of a turnover machine. And Lewis Young just kind of got punked repeatedly. He was really overwhelmed against Daniel McStay, who finished with four goals for the game. 
Continuing on that note, stats for the Lions, McStay, not only the four goals, but 16 disposals. His best game in a while, for sure. The big O, Oscar McInerney, 19 disposals and eight clearances. I I think he's still a little bit reckless at times, but nonetheless an effective player. You take it as part of his game. The untagged Lockie Neal, a goal, 32 disposals, 10 score involvements, 9 clearances. Maybe should have tagged Hugh McCluggage, a behind, 28 disposals, 10 score involvements. Reese Matheson showing why he belongs once again with a goal, a behind, and 24 disposals. Kalamachi had gotten subbed out because of concussion concerns. And Marcus Adams was injured late as well, so they did have to move Zorko back in the fourth quarter. But he still racked up a goal of a high, 22 disposals, nine score involvements, and seven marks. And Zach Bailey, how good is this guy? Four goals, one behind, 19 disposals, 575 meters gained. He's going to be a really good player for a long time. Carlton stats of note, Sam Doherty, 28 disposals, seven marks. If you want a perfect number of meters gained, you got it for him with 420. Adam Saad with 24 disposals, 10 score involvements, and a perfectly round 500 meters gained. Sam Walsh with 27 touches, 6 clearances, and 6 tackles. And I saved Patrick Cripps for last for multiple reasons. A goal won, 24 disposals, and 7 tackles. But the main discussion around him is that he has been suspended for 2 games. He went up late when Kalamachi was bringing the ball down. Didn't need to go up at all. This is more on the careless and high-impact side of things, and we can't tell if that immediate contact caused a concussion or how much of it was caused by Cripps ending up falling on top of Bocci, which is obviously inadvertent. I expected two games for this, especially with what has been given two games with head concerns this year, going all the way back to Braden Maynard in the Amy Community Series. Do I like it? No, but it fits the bill. I think it's bullshit. You know, in real time, it does look a little late, but then you slow it down, it looks completely clean. He just went for the ball and landed in the wrong spot. The thing that I'm not sure if you've gotten your head around as much as I have, Ethan, is the whole careless conduct side of things. And it was careless. He did definitely try to play the man a bit more than he tried to play the ball. And I think you could justify a fine. I think maybe a one-game suspension at most, but two, no way. At the same time, uh, there goes the shot at the Brownlow, and he accrued a lot of votes in the first few rounds. Hopefully this isn't a case where the top vote-getter for the season doesn't end up winning. At this point, I still think it's going to be Lockie Neal or maybe Andrew Brayshaw. Maybe Tuke Miller will steal it. The Brownlow predictor on the AFL website, which does seem to include all round 21 games, has Cripps currently in fifth place, so that shouldn't be an issue. As of now, it's got Brayshaw at 28, Miller and Neal each at 26, and then Clayton Oliver at 24. It's always interesting thinking about where things lie in terms of the Brownlow because there are some teams where there's one player that's clearly going to get a lot of votes. You look at the Gold Coast Suns in 2013 with Gary Applin Jr., for example. But the top teams, there are often multiple players that are competing for very similar types of votes. Christian Petraka and Clayton Oliver can cancel each other out a decent amount at Melbourne. Last year, I really wasn't sure about Ollie Wines because of how strongly Travis Boat played in a few games in particular, but Wines was able to get it done. One thing that Grayshaw does have going for him is that there hasn't been one, you know, complete standout in the midfield compared to him for the year at Fremantle. Luke Ryan does rack up big possession numbers, but on more of a back line. Also, compared to the last couple of years, the Brownlow votes 
whoever ends up winning it is probably going to have a bit of a lower total than the winner of the last couple of years. Neil had 31 votes in just 17 games in 2020. Last year, Ollie Wines had 36. Six of the last seven winners have had at least 31 votes, the one exception being Tom Mitchell winning it with 28 in 2018. Circling back to some final stats in that Brisbane and Carlton game, inside 50s were plus 23 to Brisbane, 69 to 46. Nice. And clearances, Brisbane's way, 48-37 overall and 24-8 from the center. This is one case where having the more dominant Ruckman did lead to more hits to advantage and more clearances with it. You combine that with the lack of a tag on Lockie Neal and it more than makes sense. The final game of the round was West Coast and Adelaide. Now, normally this game wouldn't acquire much interest at all. And honestly, the only thing that kept my interest throughout this one, and probably most of the footy world's interest, was the fact that it was Josh J. Kennedy's final game. Who the hell knew, you know, how many chances he was going to get if it was just going to end up being a Kobe finale-like thing where they targeted him every chance they could, or if he was just going to get one goal and a nice round of applause. Well, he got the Eagles' first goal, and then he got a second. And he ended up with eight. It's the most for any player in the game this year. Yeah, Nick Larky, you were outdone within the round, within the day, in fact. Oh, and it still wasn't enough. West Coast 13-8-86, defeated by Adelaide 16-6-102. I can only laugh at that. Look, the outcome of this game for Eagles fans is secondary. Oh, uh, was it? It would have been cool for him to go out with the win, but look, he scored eight goals. This game was not about winning and losing. This game was about vibes, and the vibes were excellent. With this loss, considering that they round out the season against Frio and Geelong, the Eagles are probably going to finish at 2-20 and 20 unless the Cats rest absolutely everybody. But look, whether or not the Eagles won this game did not stop this from being a memorable day for all the right reasons. I'm usually not a big fan of fan service stuff. You know, keeping an old guy around past his use just to appease fans is something that happens in baseball a lot and it drives me nuts. No, Kennedy is not the superstar he once was, but he's still a functional player who probably could have gone on beyond this year if he really wanted to. At the same time, for a guy that would want to compete while he's playing, more than understandable why he goes out now and honestly why he could have gone out a year earlier. But I'm glad that they got more than 50,000 there to Optus Stadium for this finale for him. Attendance was 50,117. By far the Eagles' best crowd this year. It was the most I've cheered for an individual player in a game where I don't give a shit who wins. And look, if you're an Eagles fan, this season has sucked, but at least you come out of it with a couple of good memories. That win over Collingwood was really fun, snapping the losing streak against Essendon was cathartic, and the memories out of this game will last. And frankly, You'd remember this game a lot more for Josh Kennedy kicking eight goals in a loss than you would have Josh Kennedy kicking one goal in a win, unless that was a super impactful goal. I will say Kennedy did have one miss on probably the easiest shot that he had, which could have tied the game with just over five minutes left. But people aren't going to remember that, and people shouldn't. Kennedy actually kind of joked about it in the interviews after the game. And look, the Eagles should have a lot of list turnover this offseason. Benjamin can tell you a lot more about that. They have largely failed this year. We knew they were going to be bad. They ended up worse than expected, but this day was not about winning and losing. This day was about vibes and memories 
And this is a time when fan service is completely acceptable. The fans were served well. Also of note, 200th game for Rory Laird, all in the Crows uniform. Eagles players during interviews gave him a lot of credit, and he ended up being the leader in almost every key statistical category for the day. He kicked a pair of goals. And that's super rare for him in the first place, and for him to get the opening goal in two of their first three is even more insane. But I mean, I guess you should just bet on guys to get goals and milestone games to begin with. Do coaches push milestone players forward to try to get them those goals? I'm not entirely sure. I think it's more just the psychological thing, players kind of embracing the occasion. In addition to those two goals, he finished with 36 disposals, 10 clearances, and 7 score involvements. He's clearly still got a lot of years left in him. And we'll give more sad stuff after Benjamin gives you a little bit more of a roundup because he is the Eagles guy. Not the Eagles guy and Eagles guy. But I guess I'm the one here. The Eagles cost themselves a lot of chances in this game. Jack Darling dropped a couple of marks that I really expected him to grab. He has had hands of stone at times this season. And then a couple bad moments from Jack Redden late, where he was caught unawares, got caught holding the ball by Elliot Hillberg with just under three minutes left. And I could tell then the game was over. A couple of poor kicks that led to turnovers as well. And because of that, I'm honestly a little bitter about this game, that they couldn't get that win for Kennedy because it was there for the taking. I'm not saying Adelaide didn't play well. They did, and they did that without Taylor Walker having much of an impact. Tom Barris did a very good job on him, limiting him to just five disposals, a goal and a behind. But that allowed Darcy Fogarty to take that leading role in the forward group, and he embraced it. Huge for him to keep developing that way. He kicked 4-1. He's going to have to be that main guy sooner or later, and he is an extremely accurate kick, so when he gets the ball, watch the hell out. And just to think of what the Crows are going to be like between him, Joshua Shelley when he's fully healthy, Riley Philthorpe as well, Sam Barry pushing forward off of all the tackling that he does. He's still the leading tackler in the AFL, and he's kicking better as well. So much positive for Adelaide and over a stretch of the past couple weeks where there have been so many negatives in terms of their past weighing them down. It's good that their fans can look ahead at a good on-field product for the near future. Already gave Rory Laird stats. You already gave Darcy Fogarty's. Jordan Dawson, 27 disposals, 691 meters gained. And Sam Barry, who I did not realize is only 20 years old until I saw that AFL Central graphic. 19 disposals, 12 tackles, 8 clearances. Barry is the leading tackler in the AFL with 151 through 20 games. Rory Laird is actually second. He had that AFL record 20 tackle game three rounds ago in that narrow loss to Collingwood. And he's just four behind Barry overall at 147. Stat lines of note for the Eagles. Let's go from the back forward. Tom Barris with 10 marks and nine intercepts. Shannon Hearn, 25 disposals, eight intercepts, seven marks, 508 meters gained. Still has a lot more to give, and it sounds like he will play on. Jack Redden, 17 disposals and an octopus, though again, had some miscues at really inopportune times. Looking toward the middle of the field, Nick Natanui with nine clearances and eight score involvements did a lot of his own work, getting the ball to advantage out of ruck contests. Hopefully he can stay healthy these next couple years as well as the Eagles build. Hopefully Bailey J. Williams and Callum Jameson can build themselves up as well so that they can support him better because the Eagles do definitely suffer a lot when Natanui 
is off the oval. Luke Shuey with 23 disposals and six tackles. Tim Kelly, 26 and six tackles, but he has been suspended a game for some rough conduct, some wrestling, as it was officially labeled, against Sam Barry. No, this isn't wrestling! This isn't wrestling! Xavier O'Neill had 16 disposals and eight tackles. A lot of activity going midfield to half forward. I guess you could call those positives, even though a lot of them were from the older group. In terms of scoring, Jamie Cripps, two goals, seven marks, six tackles. He's someone that I floated as a potential trade option. He could be a really good depth piece on a lot of contenders. The question is, does he want to leave home in Western Australia? And Josh Kennedy kicked 8-2, taking eight marks of the process. That's just about it for our round 21 recap. But of course, we finish the episode with our goal and mark of the week nominees. First up, mark of the week, round 20's winner was Darcy Fogarty for a mark he took over Mitch McGovern. Your three nominees for mark this week are Shea Bolton. He broke free from Tom Clurry and left over Noah Cumberland. Always fun to see a guy take a big mark over his teammate. In fact, all three marks were from this game. So it's the second straight week. Mark of the week will come from the Adelaide Oval. That's the first time that all three goal or mark nominations came from a single match since 2019. Round 12 for marks, which was Collingwood against Melbourne on the Queen's birthday. And round 18 for goals as Adelaide against Essendon. Another Adelaide Oval contest there. We thank Swamp for those stats. Jack Revolt was also nominated. He tracked a ball into a crowd of three defenders plus two teammates and marked it. And then you had Connor Rosie over Daniel Rioli, kind of got leverage with putting his knee into Rioli's neck. Benjamin, who do you have winning this one? I really like Rosie. He's really the only positive I could see a poor player getting against Daniel Rioli all game. The height on his was good, and I wasn't really sure how Rosie was because he had had some knee concerns going into halftime and had spent a decent amount of the second quarter on the bench, went into the rooms a little early, but that was a really fun one. But I think I'm going to give it to Shea Bolton because of the overall play, being able to get free from Clurry and then going over his teammate. I love seeing those teammate. Like you, I really think it's awesome when we see teammate interaction there. Don't know how sore Cumberland was after that one, but probably smiled and laughed it off, especially when he's been going so well. You could give this one to either Rosie or Bolton. I think I'm going to go with Rosie, but both of them very deserving. And don't get me wrong, I like Jack Revolts. It's just that maybe... We're more used to that sort of going with the fly of the ball type thing from American football. And also both Jack and Nick Revolt had better marks just like that. I don't know how Nick Revolt didn't win with one of those that he took in the past. And Jack had one like that last year. But that one was the lesser of the three this round for sure. When it came to goal of the week, hey, Darcy Fogarty won that too. Became just the sixth player to win both in the same round. Liam Ryan, the previous one. But none of Fogarty's four goals from this past week were nominated. Instead, you have Corey not related to Sam Durden, picking up Tom DeConing's crumb and kicking for the left boundary. Kind of hesitated before getting the snap. Just a really smart split-second wait. Nathan O'Driscoll took a Caleb's wrong handball near midfield, ran to the edge of the 50, and kicked for goal. And Dane Zorko received a Daniel McStay handball and kicked a dribble from the sharp angle from the right to the left. Ethan, your pick? Corey Durden. I saw that one in real time and was the most impressed by it. O'Driscoll's was not memorable, honestly. And Zorko's was good, but didn't stand out to me like Durden's, where I said right away, like, that's a goal of the week, Dominic. I say Corey Durden as well. 
O'Driscoll stood out to me because of the many conversations we've had about him and also the fact that it really was the perfect way to atone for the goal he cost them earlier. And Zorko's was nice, but I think Durden's the clear winner here. We are just two weeks away from the end of the home and away season. It does not feel like we should be as far along in the season as we already are. Time has flown by even with us dedicating more time to thinking about the sport, talking about the sport than we ever have before with this podcast. Engaging with our hearts and with our minds. Thanks, Basil. Or actually, should I say thanks, Brett, there because it was Brett Kirk. Yeah, still thanks, Basil. Yeah, I agree. Weird to think that he's Lord Mayor of Perth now. We'll be very active over these final seven weeks of the AFL men's season. These next two rounds, the pre-finals by, and then the four rounds of finals, we'll have all sorts of content in between the slates of games there. Hopefully you are following this podcast so that you can get notifications for when our episodes are released. And hopefully you're also following us on Twitter at Americans Footy to get our thoughts in real time. Additionally, I am personally on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. I am on Twitter at Castle Media. I'm way cooler than him. Follow me. Eh, he's doing a lot more functional things when it comes to his Twitter stuff with the media work he's doing for the San Francisco Standard. Want insight into high school sports? He's your guy. And finally, Ethan's son, Grian Harambe the Footy Cat, is on Instagram at catnamedgrian. We'll talk to you again pretty soon because our round 22 preview is right around the corner.